the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. For sports fans, visit theathletic.com slash spot track, S-P-O-T-R-A-C. Get yourself 40% off that first year subscription again. That's theathletic.com slash spot track. My name is Mike Giannetti. Pinch hitter today. Scott Allen takes over the show for a double interview episode. Top of the show, Keith Smith joins to elaborate on a great piece he posted at SpotTrack.com discussing the potential for NBA expansion. It's now kind of a mainstream conversation as Adam Silver has weighed in. Keith kind of dropped the ball two days ago on SpotTrack.com and via Twitter as well that it's probably time. We're at 30 teams. We've been at 30 teams for almost two decades. Charlotte was the last expansion franchise. And Keith's got some cities in mind, what it means financially, what it means for the league, why it's the right time, and plenty, plenty more. And he discusses all of this with Scott at the forefront of this show. And on the back end, Cousin Dan, now our resident gambler, fantasy, baseball nut, discusses all of that. In fact, uh, kind of a focus on DFS, Daily Fantasy Sports, his thoughts, his tips, his stayaways as the baseball season starts and as basketball and hockey approach full postseason mode what he thinks the money looks like in that regard so that's the uh that's the scott allen driven show today i'll be back on uh the saddle probably after the easter holiday and i will be doing a video breakdown of Derek carr's contract as well as video breakdowns and article breakdowns of major league baseball's extensions and uh also coming on spytrack.com soon keith smith's mba offseason pieces probably divisionally based as we did with the nfl ones which worked out pretty well and uh, i'll be doing an nfl offseason recap by division so discussing those raiders extensions discussing the movement in that afc and nfc west and uh, how the bills and the dolphins are certainly making the afc east a big division so that's coming up on spytrack.com we've got the wnba season kicking off here shortly they had a draft this week MLS is under underway. EPL is wrapping up, and uh, the PGA is in form. All of those are uh, tracked on Spot Track, one way or another, and we'll keep up with that throughout the entire 2022 year. Enjoy Scott Allen and Keith Smith and cousin Dan. All right, Keith, uh, great to have you back here. Got a little bit of NBA talk uh, out of the gate. So first things first, what are your thoughts with the play-in game now that we're in what? year two with this play-in experiment? Yeah, I, I think, it, one, I think it's accomplished what the NBA wanted. They, they have uh, cut down on the uh, completely overt tanking. It used to be by the time you hit the trade deadline, you'd have at least six, seven, eight teams that weren't at all trying to win, and that made a lot of terrible games down the stretch. So I think that has helped. It gave us a good amount of excitement uh, this year because we had a couple of teams in there that, quite frankly, we didn't expect like Brooklyn and uh, maybe even the Clippers. Um, I, I do wish they'd bring back the games back component uh, that they had in the bubble uh, version, which was obviously a very different time, but I wish they'd bring that back because it feels a little unfair. They won, but Minnesota was so far ahead. I, they they kind of already done their work for me, but yeah. And, and I think the games were great the, the first couple nights and we'll see what this uh, uh, last uh, round brings on Friday night, but so far so good for the NBA and the plan. Have you heard 
if the league and PA have done any more discussion as to whether this is going to eventually count as part of playoff statistics. I know we're still in that. It's counting as that in between. It's not regular season. It's not postseason. Have you heard anything whatsoever uh, as far as if it's going to count as uh, playoff games? Because obviously when we're dealing with some of these metrics with, you know, incentives likely to be earned or unlikely to be earned, it could have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's so far, it seems like everyone is in agreement that this is a separate thing. This is not regular season, nor is it it playoffs. And I think their hope is over time and years, it will become its kind of own thing. Um, as far as you know, we'll start having records and stats on the play in and those, those kind of things. Right now, they can be a little tricky to to even track down. I know at least real GM has them, so that's where I try to uh, find them if I need them. Um, but it is very interesting to see how this is handled, and, and it's funny because if you look at some of the ways things are written that come from the league itself. It's very clear. They, they consider this to be postseason, but not playoffs, um, which is, is just kind of a, a interesting little quirk, which I guess makes sense. Cause if you're not calling it part of the playoffs and I guess it, and it's not part of the regular season, it's gotta be something. So postseason it is, I guess. All right. Uh, so you posted a piece for us yesterday uh, talking about, NBA expansion. And I've heard some, you know, rumors from people that I've been listening to and reading. And then you brought up about the expansion is starting to sort of ramp up here. So what does this mean financially? What does it mean for the league? Have at it. What do you got for us? Sure. Yeah. I I think what's interesting is um, it used to be when Adam Silver first took over, there's a handful of times that that the commissioner does like a kind of state of the NBA address. There's usually all-star weekend and then around the NBA finals. And he routinely said, nope, expansion's not on the table. It's not something we're even discussing. It's not something we're going to consider at all. Then when we had the pause of the season in 2020 due to the pandemic, there was a thought of, hey, if you want to get a good chunk of money flowing in immediately, maybe it's time to talk about expansion. And even then, Adam Silver said, yeah, not really something we're, you know, looking to do. We want to focus on getting our 30 teams back and, you know, to a good place and all those things. Then it was about a year or so ago. He said for the first time ever, he said, it's not anything imminent, but we have dusted off those uh, analysis and we started to look at it, which was interesting because it wasn't, it was the first time he just didn't dismiss it completely out of hand. Then this, just this week, um, I believe you pronounce her name, Tamika Tremaglio. Um, I apologize if I'm butchering that pronunciation, Um, but she's the new executive director of the Players Association. She was at a sports business conference, and she said, when asked about expansion, we do want more teams. I think it's good for the business. Ideally, we hope there'll be more teams popping up in the United States. So that's big because now you have the two power players on either side of the table in agreement that at least it's time to start talking about this and that that's huge. And then there's a whole bunch of other reasons why it seems like we're finally ready for, for the NBA to expand. I don't know how much you want to get into those, but it does seem like this is 
probably more of a topic now than it has been at any point or, or a more of a realistic topic, I should say, than it has been at any point in maybe the last decade or so. Is, is it more coming to the front because of coming out of the pandemic and trying to make up for some of that lost revenue? Or do you think this is just the uh, nature of the beast where the growth of the league, the growth of uh, the G League and some other outside areas are playing a role in the league potentially needing to have more teams? Yeah, that's a great question. I tend to think it's more of the latter than it is the um, former, because I think if they were just looking for that kind of, all right, we need a quick infusion of money, they would have already maybe moved down this path a little further. I think the owners are looking at it as, yeah, that sounds great that we're all going to get a you know good chunk of money because uh, there was a report uh, back in 2021 that said the expansion fee was projected to be about 2.5 billion. And Adam Silver on the record said, yeah, that's very low. So that led to um, speculation to be somewhere between three and 3.5 billion per team. There's also been a lot of talk that when they do expand, it will be two teams that come in because they're not going to want to go to the odd number. Again, they, they know that the issues that causes. So you're talking six, seven billion dollars that would come in. The 30 teams split that up. Um, but the owners also know there's a new TV contract coming. And then you're going to have to split that pie 32 ways versus 30. And that starts to become a uh, difference. But that is a factor, but I think the bigger factor is there are cities who are pushing for this and very ready for this. I think the league is in a position where, as we've seen and covered on the site, the salary cap projection for next season and beyond just keeps going up. They, they baked in the minimum 3%, and now it's projected to rise almost $10 million uh, this next uh, season, and that's you know far more than, than what anybody thought it would be. So that's a sign. The league is pretty healthy. I think they've gotten back to a good place. Uh, they've released a whole bunch of stuff that all their TV ratings, their social media, league pass subscriptions, all that stuff is way, way up uh, from prior years. So they're really uh, on an upward trajectory. Then I think you have the fact that the talent pool is finally deep enough. There are a lot of really good players um, that don't get regular time on NBA teams. And when you look at the, the advent of the two-way um, and these guys who are coming in, playing on two ways, getting converted. Uh, even this season with the um, kind of wonky hardship pandemic, COVID-related uh, call-ups, you, we, I think we all saw, boy, there's an awful lot of guys who can really play that are playing somewhere else right now. So I think you start to put all that stuff together and you're really seeing a league that is positioned to finally say, all right, it's probably time to start talking about doing this expansion thing. Um, because it's by the time we get a new team, it'll have been 20 years since the uh, Bobcats came in in 2004, which sounds crazy considering it used to be about every 10-ish years or so at the maximum that the league expanded. I've heard Seattle. I've heard Las Vegas. <clears throat> is there... Is, is there only going to be two from what you're hearing, or could there be even more than two that would come into uh, the league if they were to expand, or is it that it's one of them, either Seattle or Las Vegas gets one? What are you hearing? 
Yeah. And so what I've heard is it will be two. I think they're very conscious of you had more than two. And all of a sudden that while the talent pool is bigger, you really do risk uh, watering things down a little bit. I think they learned that when in back-to-back seasons, they brought in uh, two teams and then two teams back in the late 80s uh, when they brought in the Magic, Heat, Timberwolves, and Hornet, the original Hornets. Um, I think they realized all right, that that made kind of a mess of things, and it took about three, four years for that to really uh, stabilize. And that was even with uh, a team like the Magic getting incredible lottery luck in landing Shaquille O'Neal and then the top pick a second straight year. Um, so when we get into it, two cities, Seattle seems like they are a lock unless they blow it. Uh, the NBA has basically, without ever directly saying it, has whether it was David Stern or Adam Silver has said, yeah, you know, we we kind of bungled letting the, the supersonics leave town in the first place that that wasn't handled real well. Um, they've, they've done everything they can to make sure things like that don't happen again, whether it be with the Sacramento Kings or the Milwaukee Bucks, or most recently the Minnesota Timberwolves and New Orleans Pelicans. So they are in a position where Seattle's almost certainly going to get one of the teams. A big thing was, were they going to get an arena ready? They, they, they did. They, uh, I think it's now called Climate Pledge Arena. Um, formerly Key Arena was upgraded for the Seattle Kraken. So that's been been uh, a big thing um, for Seattle. Then you have Vegas. Vegas is it's the summer home of the NBA. It's it's the uh, the home of summer league. Um, they are pushing hard um, with a group that is going to build um, an arena with the primary goal of getting a getting their own NBA expansion team. They've shown. Uh, through the Golden Knights, that even though that's a city based a lot on uh, tourism, they still have the local base to support a uh, professional team that plays, you know, sometimes three, four nights a week um, in town. And that that's where they believe we can do this. So everybody thinks as well that the league wants to be a little more West Coast east coast balanced um we've seen the last couple teams have migrated west to east um so that's turned turned a little bit of a challenge to for them so i think they want to make sure that they do that but if either one of those fall louisville has been pushing really really hard for almost a decade to get a team st louis and kansas city are consistently mentioned and then if they wanted to go international with a team vancouver feels like they get kind of a raw deal with the grizzlies leaving town feel like they would do better this time around montreal has been mentioned and then mexico city which has been kind of a trial basis with the g league uh starting play there and that that'll be better when we're in a more uh, normal travel environment um but th- that's kind of another city that's been uh put put out there as the nba tries to push into the uh, latin and south american markets um very very much so i think we're, we're gonna see my guess is seattle and las vegas and then they'll save those other cities as they kind of down the line if if we did more but i don't think we'll see more than two teams in the initial round so from uh, you mentioned it already, three to three and a half billion dollars would be potentially the expansion fee. Do you know how that works? Do, do they have to pay that up front when a team is or a city is selected or does that money get infused into the NBA when the team actually starts playing games or starts actually having the logos and that kind of stuff out there? And then on top of that, do you think the league is going to just push all of that money into one year 
or would they cap smooth? What are your thoughts or what are you hearing about that? Yeah, and that that is a very um, interesting question because what happens uh, there is, you know, how how do we get to to that point um, with that? Because what what happens is you're talking uh, roughly two hundred million dollars. Um, if it's six six billion uh, total, you're talking two hundred million dollars per team that that each team's going to get immediately. Um, it, I, my belief is, and my understanding, and that this is always negotiation um with with all the sides but it is the the, that gets paid when the franchise is awarded so it's we're definitely doing a team in seattle the seattle group you pay your you know whatever the expansion fee is and you pay that in and then that gets loaded in now how they'll handle that as far as uh, basketball related income which ultimately is what drives the salary cap and those things that I don't know because that'll be a be a pretty heavy negotiation between the the league and the players association. This is why I think they're them having this really good long period of relative labor peace has been great um, in their working relationship to get through the pandemic the way they did initially with the bubble and then through the last couple of seasons is really big because I think what we're going to see is um, the the NBA and the NBPA will really work together through because there's also going to be a new CBA coming so we're going to have that a new TV contract and potentially expansion. My guess is they're going to want to roll that all in together and start hammering out the idea of, all right, this is how we're going to handle all of these things that are coming to hopefully really kind of launch the NBA into the next decade plus at that time of here's where everything stands. This is what it's going to look like. So there's going to be a lot of negotiating going on between the two sides. But I think the good relationship means hopefully that comes without any uh, loss or stoppage of play of, of games and of themselves. You make a great point with the upcoming CBA because there are a lot of different a lot of different things that you keep hearing come up, whether now the expansion, whether it's the uh, bringing on high school players again, mm-hmm. or are they going to do something with uh, the, the maximum salary, anything like that. And, and that's one of the nice things I really liked about this piece was you not only talked about the expansion of teams themselves, but the expansion in where the NBA really is with expanding of the uh, TV ratings, the uh, league pass, which you talked about, reform, anything like that. So it's a really good piece, not just for expansion of teams, but literally expansion of the the league itself. And I I do feel that the cap smoothing with all of the things that are about to come in the next five years or and beyond, you know, cap smoothing is going to probably have to be at the forefront because you can't have all of that money coming in and jump the salary cap 30 million, 40 million, whatever it might be, (laughs) because then you're going to really run into a situation where you have the mid-level exceptions, the rookie scale, the minimum salaries, all of those that are based off of the salary cap percentage increase right now are going to have a massive jump. And then you're going to have teams and players and agents all eyeing that specific year of, of, of jump. Whereas if it was known that it was going to be a cap smoothing, you're not going to have a manipulation of contracts to make sure they're in line for said massive jump. 
I completely agree. I think when we saw the big spike, which, you know, everybody remembers as that's what allowed Kevin Durant to get to the Warriors. That's what uh, caused um, some of those <laughs> Luol Deng and Timofey Moskov contracts and those kind of things. I think what we, what's different is now, I think when the NBA initially that year said, Hey, we want to do this smoothing thing because this is what could happen. I think the players association and rightly so, was a little distrustful of, yeah, no, we that doesn't sound good. We, are we ever going to see that money? What's that going to come to? Now I think you have a different environment where, one, everybody saw. Nobody wants a repeat of uh, guys, you know, because all that happens is whoever's a free agent that summer gets it. They get all the money, and then everything is normalized within a year or so. Right. So unless you're going to have another spike after, which is probably not going to happen. So I think what would happen this time around is they would be very purposeful about, all right, how do we handle this to make sure the money's going to the right places, the right spread, it's getting to the right guys. Because I do think what you would see in this case is the better relationship and the better trust is going to come as long as it is, that money's going to come to you eventually. Um, You know, you just can't, you know, well, we're going to smooth it out. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know is, you know, 10, $15 million is, you know, magically being smoothed out by disappearing it. As long as it, it ends up in a good place, then they'll be okay. So I, I do think we're definitely going to see that because it's just going to be too much and nobody wants a repeat of what happened back in 2016. Yeah, that's a great point. If a team were to say they wanted to expand and a team was chosen this summer, for hypothetical purposes, what would the turnaround be? It wouldn't be obviously the next year. Are we talking two, three, five years down the line before a team would actually uh, come into the league? So there might be a smoothing in in purposes of the media would come in and then the team would come in after the fact? Or uh, do you have any sense of that, how fast the team could come in? Yeah, it generally... If you look at it based on what the NBA has done in the past and what other sports have done most recently with the NHL, there's about a two year lead up okay. to it. So what what would like, so for in in your example, if we're going to announce it uh, this summer that that Seattle is getting a team, um, clearly they would not play in the 2022-23 season, um, and probably not even the 23-24. They would probably debut in the 24-25 season. Um, just is looking at the time horizons with that. Now, some of that can be related to, well, we want to launch them when an arena is ready or something like that. That could be different. Or sometimes it's all right. Well, you know, they're going to come in and their arena is being built, but they'll play their first year in, you know, arena X and that's how we'll handle this. So they, they, they've definitely got options um, with this. And that's where I think Seattle and Las Vegas are a little bit further ahead because they do have those options for, Hey, these teams can play in these places uh, while maybe a new arena is being built. But the Las Vegas dollar uh, reporting that's out there is they're building this arena, you know, one way or another, it's, it's, it's going to be built. And then whoever plays there plays there apparently. Um, but they, they've got other arenas there. They have the place, the uh, golden Knights play. Um, they have UNLV obviously uh, if they had to, so they've got options uh, that they could uh, do what they need to do. But I do think this, is a situation where my 
best guess on this is we're going to hear something within the next two to three years that the expansion is coming, and then teams will play within the next five, maybe six years um, out from that. I I do think we will see new teams here fairly shortly, which will mean they'll come in after uh, the TV contract is signed, after the new CBA is negotiated. But if they announce it within that, you could see all those things kind of bing, 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 all lined up. And again, that gives them the chance to sit down and plan and build all of this into their planning for the future, which seems to be the best way to handle this. Yeah. Fascinating stuff with the upcoming CBA, the expansion, high schoolers coming in, possible draft uh, alterations, a lot, a lot of things with a league that just continues to grow. Pretty great. Um, what, do, what do you got coming up for us here soon? And then I'll get you out of here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. We're uh, transitioning into off-season mode. So we've got uh, off-season outlooks, uh, previews, whatever you want to call them. They're, they're, they're coming uh, here. So we'll, we'll be uh, knocking uh, all 30 teams again like we did last season. Thankfully, thankfully, in a uh, bigger, a little bit more time. Uh, we're not working with such a condensed uh, calendar like we did uh, the last couple of years, which is really nice. So I'm really excited for that because although – there's not a ton of cap space out there. There's there's the league is a little more wide open, which is always a fun place to be um, with this. There's no uh, inevitable teams hovering over everything where everyone else is just kind of tinkering around the edges. There's a lot of teams that feel like whether, hey, we're, we're a couple pieces away from really contending for a title or we're a couple pieces away from making a playoff push. Uh, we, we've got that. And then, of course, there's always a couple teams that are leaning hard into rebuild. So really excited to dive in team by team um, on these offseason previews and, and start getting those put out. We are looking forward to that as well. He's at Keith Smith NBA. Keith, great job on this and looking forward to the offseason previews. I appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good one. All right, Dan. Major League Baseball is in full swing, and I'm sure you're chomping at the bit with DFS, betting, you name it. Uh, How's it going so far after four games? Uh, Too early to see the payoff, if you will, but I'm I'm having fun getting uh, getting back into it. Yep. Oh, great. Me too. I I did a couple. Wasn't able to do yesterday, um, or I was at the Nats game. So, Uh, so. You and I had a conversation back in the summer, and so I wanted to dive into this uh, daily fantasy stuff a little bit more uh, with you now that the season is beginning. Um, Sort of going through uh, what are your methods, what do you look for, um, what types of tournaments do you usually do, uh, that kind of stuff. So let's start with um, something I found fascinating was the stacking ability. Uh, What is stacking, for those that are listening? And uh, what are your trends with stacking? Yeah, so just to kind of give like a super elementary um, summary um, between like kind of the two sets of um, daily fantasy games, there's what most people will refer to cash games, which are um, essentially when you enter um, a contest where it's not exactly, but roughly 50% of the field gets paid out. So if you enter a 10 person contest, you know, four, five positions of that contest might get paid out. Um, I typically don't play a lot of that. I play more um, large field tournaments, um, which 
is more of like a top heavy payout where the top 10 positions might get paid a lot. And then there a fifth, a fifth of the field gets paid. Um, but four fifths of the field um, loses all of their money. So um, just to kind of separate those two, I typically like to play. And what we'll talk about today is more geared towards large field tournaments. Um, cash games uh, is a little bit more of a specialty in my opinion. Um, it's fun. It's more, it might be more fun for just the generic um, fan to like log on and enter a lineup in um, at lower stakes, knowing that you have like a almost a 50, 50 shot. Um, whereas the tournaments that I play in, um, I could not win a substantial amount of money for, um, you know, weeks or months on end, depending on how you play. So, um, yeah, so to, uh, to move on, they, so uh, uh, stacking is basically instead of picking uh, random, a random assortment of players from different teams, like you might have on your real life fantasy, season long fantasy team, um, where your catcher, first baseman, second baseman are all playing for different teams. Sacking is more geared towards trying to minimize the variance of picking all of those players having a good day individually and sort of just going all in on one or two teams um, and, and picking multiple players from that offense and ho hoping that they blow up that day and, um, and the, you get the correlation from position to position. So in other words, like uh, an example of a stack might be um, the first five players in a lineup. Um, so like, for instance, yesterday, the Blue Jays, it was like George Springer, um, Vlad Guerrero, Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Curiel Jr. Like, so like you, if you just go through that, if you just plug in those first four or five players on a, on a roster or at really at any point in their roster, you, you can go down the roster too, if you want, but obviously the, the, the most value is at the top of the lineup. Um, basically what you're doing is just saying, I think this team is going to do well. And if the leadoff hitter gets on and the second batter hits him in, you're going to get correlated points from both of those players. Um, so, in, which is a lot easier to rack up points quickly um, rather than trying to individually pick players um, specifically for tournaments where you're trying to have like a top 1% finish. And I mean, some of these tournaments could be 5,000 people. Some of them are, you know, 35,000 people. So when you're trying to finish in the top 1% of such a, uh, of such a large tournament like that, you really have to, um, you know, depend on some correlation to, to get to the absolute ceiling. So it's better to do a, a two, three, four in a lineup than spread it out of two, four, seven, uh, yeah. if you were going that route. Yeah. So on like on DraftKings specifically, you can stack up to five players on FanDuel. I, I'm quite sure it's four. Um, you, you can only stack four players from one team. So you, you don't need to be specific. Um, I'm sorry. You don't specifically need to, to have them all in direct order of each other. Um, because if you think of it, you know, the, the leadoff hitter could get on the second batter could strike out next batter hits a three run home run. So in that scenario, you know, you didn't necessarily want the second player in the lineup. So in theory, you know, for examples, it's, it's easier to explain it like that. In theory though, there's no issue on skipping portions of a lineup um, or utilize or going down the lineup 
further, if you will. So, and on that note, um, if you think about it, in a way, it, there's a little bit of a bonus in picking teams who are on the road because you're guaranteed that ninth inning, um, regardless of whether they're winning or losing. Whereas occasionally, if you have a home team that you stacked um, and they're doing and they're winning the game, um, you know they're they're going to lose that ninth inning at bat at home. On the flip side of that, if the if the home team is up ten runs, you're probably doing well and don't really need that that final inning. But I, I'm talking more of like a close, you know, maybe four three game something like that. Um, in the late innings, you're going to lose that that extra half inning of um, you know potential production in your lineup. Yeah, that's interesting with the the road team. I, I never even really thought of it from that standpoint. Um, yeah, it's not it's not something to like to like go all out for but it's just something to keep in mind um when you're like looking for a potential value or um when there's like a really high owned team playing at home it might just be easier to fade that team and um go, go with the you know a different team that might be on the road so it's just just something to keep in mind and and i get on on the same note i get more comfortable going further down the lineup for in a in a way team because you know that they'll get that extra you know that um you know the eighth and ninth player on an away team is more likely to get a fourth or a fifth at bat than mm-hmm. the home team so so more so that it's not I, I don't really specifically pick stacks based on whether they're home or away it's just things like that where I'll keep it in mind where I can maybe go down the lineup a little bit further Right, right. So do you take into effect with the the stacking of the lineup? Do you do you look at dome versus not dome, night game versus day game, temperature? Do you do you go into those depths as well in conjunction with stacking a specific team? So if you're if you're Toronto and you're home in a dome versus you're Toronto and you're away in say Colorado. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a lot of noise in some of like the home road splits, um, you know, specifically for like pitcher. Uh, uh, it, it's hard to say. Oh, I would say the majority of the league, a lot of the home and away or like batter versus pitcher, small sample, you know, size numbers are a little bit noisy. Um, but there's definitely, you, you should definitely be looking at where they're playing. I mean, um, it's much harder to hit home runs in San Francisco or in Oakland than it is in Colorado. Um, I, I mean, I can just tell you right off the bat, any game played in Colorado, even if it's, um, you know, the Rockies and the Diamondbacks is going to have ownership around it because of the stigma of Coors Field. And I mean, it's, it's been proven that, um, you know, run scoring is significantly higher, specifically power output, which is, which is huge in DFS, which is, um, Historically, uh, Coors Field in Colorado and um, Camden Yards in Baltimore have been kind of the two like well-known, like stackable spots um, where people, you know, regardless, the Orioles haven't been good in how long, really. And um, anytime there was a game in Camden Yards that they were, you know, that game was highly owned. Um, Things might be a little bit different this year because they have moved the left field fence a little bit, but so we'll see if that affects it. But yeah, so to get back to your original question, it is something you should definitely keep in mind. Um, as a whole, it, it can be noisy, though, if you if you focus too much on it. I mean, baseball as a whole is just so 
very it, it's such a high variant sport um that like it, the way i like to play is if anybody is really confident in one specific outcome on a certain day i like to just go in the different in a different direction even if i like like this past weekend the dodgers were in colorado and those games were all massively owned much a lot towards the Dodgers because you know we've heard so much all offseason there's a ton of popularity around those guys um and they and they largely disappointed they you know the Rockies was the offense to own there so it's just one of those things where like in a one game sample size um literally anything can happen with baseball so it's I, I try not to get too lost on that but the um the specific ballpark is something you should at least keep in the back of your mind yeah yeah the the does the stadium configuration affect or is that noisy as well? Cause you know, the, the outfield is not uniform all the way across. So like you said, with the left field in Camden yards, I know uh, it, it's always talked about here in DC when it's warmer, the ball is going to go out of the park much easier uh, because it's a home run hitter park when it is warmer versus when it's cooler. Um, so, so, is there noise based off of specific configurations or do you look for uh, left-handed batters are better in this park? So especially when hitting for home runs versus right-handed batters. Yeah. Like, I mean, Yankee stadium is probably the easiest example. The right field porch is what? 325. Now you have a bunch of left-handed power hitters there. Um, Anthony Rizzo, Joey Gallo. um, Yeah. I mean, even Stan, you know, Giancarlo Stanton hits the ball to the opposite field all the time. Judge can do the same thing. So that like Yankee stadium is, you know, home game Yankees at home are typically highly owned as well. Um, for, for the same reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. so also though, I mean, that stuff can though in a one game sample size be extremely noisy. Um, like left-handed pitchers, Typically, people will try and line up the platoon that if a left-handed pitcher is on the mound and there's a right-handed heavy lineup, um, that is appealing and people will be reluctant to play the lefty batter on the left pitcher. Um, But, I mean, it happens all the time where a lefty hits a lefty and that guy might not be owned at all because of the perceived platoon split, you know? So, like, this past weekend, not to keep going back to the Blue Jays, Blue Jays are maybe one of the best power hitting teams in the league. I think they like set either a blue Jays or a league record or something last year um, or were close. I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong, but regardless power hitting team, the, you know, righty heavy lineup, the other, the other day, like five of their first six hits were to the opposite field. So it's just one of those things where like, if the field is going to, if, you know, all of the opponents in that tournament are going to say, well, you know, I can't take a lefty. There's a lefty pitcher on the mound. You know, it it might be nice to sprinkle a couple of those guys into your lineup. All right. With, with that stacking uh, that we were talking about, do you, do you stack a lineup with a pitcher of that team or do you go with a completely different pitcher on another team? What is your focus with the pitcher? You can correlate pitcher with your lineup you don't necessarily need to the, the main thought process there is that if your offense does well, 
your pitcher will be in a, in line for the win if he's also pitching well. So you're going to get the win points there in your lineup as well. So there is some correlation there. I don't, I typically don't focus on that too much, um, but it's 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 definitely a thing, and and it's something, you know. I'll put it this way: if I like an offense that I want to stack, and I also like the pitcher at their potential upside and their perceived low ownership, um, I will, I will correlate that. I won't go out of my way to do it though, or I won't go out of my way to avoid it. If you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I totally get what you mean. Now, do you do you focus on specific teams or stay away from specific teams if they're on a hot streak or not a hot streak, or if they're at the bottom, like you mentioned the Baltimore Orioles before, do you just stay away completely from them? Or do you pick and choose like a a hot hand in on a batter or a a pitcher from specific teams? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, It's kind of just your comfort level, how you, how you want to play the game. I mean, you might be more risk averse. You might not be. Um, if you're not, you're probably going to settle into some um, middle tier offenses. Um, but if you want to, like, let's say you want to stack the Blue Jays or the Yankees, those guys are going to be expensive. Um, or anyone in Coors Field, those guys are always going to be expensive um, for DFS reasons. If you want to do that, it's fine, but you're probably going to have to get pretty pretty gross somewhere else. Um, and that can be where it gets fun, though. You know, sometimes you – like yesterday I played the Pirates a little bit and I got a Michael Chavis, you know, grand slam at like less than 1% ownership in the tournament I played. So, um, you know, the, those guys hit home runs. Those offenses still score score runs. So if, if people – if there's like a perceived notion that the Orioles are terrible and they're never going to score any runs, I mean, they're going to score runs, right? I mean, they have some some good players that can hit home runs and – steel bases, et cetera. So um, now if you just want to stay away from that and you just want to focus on, you know, on stacking middling offenses, if you will, and not really go boom bust um, or, or also, uh, sorry to back up. If you want to, if you want to squeeze in the high end pitchers too, Garrett Coles of the world, Corbin Burns, that kind of player, um, you're probably going to need to sacrifice elsewhere, whether your second pitcher, um, sorry, on DraftKings, you play with two pitchers, FanDuel, you play one. Um, you know, you, you're probably going to have to get different somewhere. You can't, you can't play the highest owned pitcher with the two highest owned offenses. If you, if you know what I mean? So yeah, I, I personally like to get a little bit weird, um, and play at least part of my stack off the grid. And if I, if I play two offenses that are relatively chalky or or popular, um, I'll, I'll get kind of weird with my pitchers. Yeah. Do you typically mix up your salaries with high risk, high reward versus uh, all the salaries are average out to be pretty close to each other? Do you mix it or do you focus one way or the other? Um, again, just goes back to the individual lineup. I mean, if mm-hmm. I play three lineups, they could all be structured a little bit differently. Um, you know, one might have a stud pitcher with a, with a you know, total Hail Mary pitcher, you know, a a guy who just got called up that has some strikeout upside, but is really cheap. Um, And sometimes I'll just go middle of the road and play to, um, you know, a pitcher that is less on FanDuel. It's a little bit different because you're literally just picking one player. And sometimes a pitcher can be, you know, Jake DeGrom in his peak can be 60% owned on a slate. So 
Um, whereas on DraftKings, you're pitching two, you're playing with two different pitchers, um, which obviously increases um, the variance of other people picking the exact same two pitchers um, with the offense. So, yeah, it's um, I would say it's it's just your personal preference, what kind of lineup you want to build. Um, either way, as a general rule of thumb, you should have some some relative confidence that most of the players in your lineup have home run ability. Um, you know, like Roberto Perez and Mike Zanino might cost the exact same price. Um, but obviously Mike Zanino has a ton of uh, home run upside compared to Roberto Perez. Does, does that make sense? It does. Yep. Yeah. So I, I, I like to, I mean, it's, it, it's almost impossible to get, you know, home run hitters throughout your lineup, you know, stacked up nicely. But if you can kind of have guys that have some sort of upside, um, you know, tournaments specifically are one on extra base hits, right? You can have a guy hit four singles. It's, it's not going to win you anything, but if you have a guy go two for five with three, three strikeouts, but two home runs, you know, you're, you're probably in the money already right there, you know? So yeah, you went down the next path I wanted to go down was, do you, do you specifically focus on specific statistics, especially in baseball, there's statistics for everything under the sun. So do you focus on the main home runs, average singles, triples, that kind of thing on base percentage, or do you even dive into even more advanced metrics to help you figure out what players you want to go? So yes, yes and no. Um, I think, I think some people get lost really in the weeds with these advanced statistics, but again, we are talking about a one game sample size. Um, those advanced stats should be leaned on heavily in more season long type leagues, in my opinion, where you're just, you know, you know, Brandon Woodruff gets blown up in his first, his first start in a season long league. Obviously that kills you in a DFS match, but for season long, you're hoping that that average is out over the course of 200 innings from Brandon Woodruff. Right. So um in terms of that, I don't think people should get like specifically build their lineups around those stats where I think they're particularly valuable is to, to maybe look at guys who are struggling, but still putting up hard hit metrics um, that, you know, people are going to avoid them because they're on a recent cold streak. Um, but they're still good players at heart. Right. We see that. We see that all the time where, um, you know, a guy hits home runs in three straight games and then the field gravitates thinking that he's going to hit a home run in a fourth straight game when um you know another uh, you know Mike Trout might have had a had a bad week and people start gravitating away from playing him and then he goes on you know he he does Mike Trout things so um yeah i i don't i don't like specifically build lineups around it i think they're good tools to use in the broader context of things um, but in, ter- in terms of like stats that you would use, I think offensively ISO isolated power is probably one of the more beneficial um, metrics. You can look at stat cast stuff too, to see like barrels and padded balls um, just to see who's hitting the ball hard. Um, so do you focus you know, like, on like on base percentage plus slugging or, or anything like that? Um, because you were mentioning, you know, getting extra base hits and that kind of stuff. So do you focus on more of those metrics too? Um, 
so, not so much. I mean, slugging is sort of incorporated in ISO. Um, but I mean, like, you know, the in a, a player's average is his average over how many hundreds of at, at, at bats. So like, maybe you want to look at their BABIP to see if like they've been unlucky. Um, sorry, batting average on balls in play to see if they've been unlucky and that their average is lower, but really Scott for like a one game sample size, you're like a math guy, like the variance in baseball, you know, Mike Trout could be the most expensive player on a slate. He could be 50% owned and he can go over five with five strikeouts and get you zero points. Right. And um, you know, the, the guy that just got called up or, or like, uh, I don't know, Tyler Naquin, some random player in the league, can hit three home runs in a game and, and win you the tournament, right? So the variance in baseball, I can't stress it enough, is so high and it's so random um, that, like, building for any pass production is sort of a fool's errand, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But on your point, there's there's things like that um, that can be taken into account. I, I, I will kind of step on what I just said right there. I, that's That's really my frame of thought for, for offensive players for pitching. There is a lot of stuff you can use like, um, like strikeout percentages. Um, even you can even play a bad pitcher who's going up against a, a good offense that strikes out a lot. Like for instance, last year, the world series winning Braves were a team that could literally bury you in the first inning with 10 runs, or they could strike out 15 times throughout the game. Right. And if you're, you have a start, like an underwhelming, maybe a Patrick Corbin is on the mound or somebody that's not super popular, you know, that guy can still strike out eight to 10 batters, you know, against a Braves team that strikes out a lot. Right. So you can look, you can take some of that stuff um, like K's per nine strikeout percentages um, or look at just the offenses in general who have low power numbers or strike out a lot versus lefties or righties. But um, I mean, DFS players at this point in its um in its history are pretty pretty smart. So a lot of that stuff is already accounted for. So so FanDuel allows you to use current season points per game and then toggle between last three, last five, last ten. Fan or DraftKings does not. It's just a total points per game. So whatever you use for compiling your stats and that kind of stuff, do you look at the immediacy of last three, last five versus like you said, don't necessarily want to with the randomness, look at the overall scope of the season, but you know, do you, do you focus on is a guy hot right now versus I know he's hot, but he's going to get cold. So I'm going to stay away from said player. Me personally, no, Scott. I mean, I would like a lot of people would refer to that as like a box score watcher where you're just literally pulling up box scores and saying, oh, this guy performed well recently. Let me plug him in. Um, That is where you get into a lot of trouble, in my opinion. Um, First of all, I should have started with this, but if you're if you're at all seriously going to play DFS, you should you really should start with purchasing some sort of projections. and ownership like um points projections and ownership projections so you know um on any given slate who the field is gravitating towards and or who projects well on a certain day um 
And most of the things you're hinting at, Scott, are, are would be already accounted for in that projection. Those people, the people doing projections in the industry are extremely smart. They're constantly changing numbers and updating things. So like the wind blowing out at Wrigley is already going to be accounted for in the projection. So it's something that you shouldn't, you wouldn't have to count twice on your end. You, you know what I mean? You would yep, just, I, do. I, I would just look at the projection and say, whoa, Nick Madrigal is projecting for you know, seven points today when typically he projects for five points. So, um, but I would just to follow up that point, the only time I really look at box scores is to just kind of get an assessment of a ceiling on a player. Um, like if they have any sort of upside ceiling, like can they hit Mm -hmm. any, um, any higher numbers or, or are they just getting four or five points every single game? You know, like a, a guy that achieves you know, on average, five fantasy points a game could be good across a whole season. But when you're trying to, again, break into the top 1% of any given tournament, it's going to be hard with, um, without spike performances from those guys. Okay. That's great. All right. Last question I have for you is you talk about your, the tournaments, the cash uh, games, the 50, 50, that kind of stuff. Do, do you dabble into any of the um, unique structures with like FanDuel has home run challenge or a three-man challenge? Uh, DraftKings has the, the tiered where you can only pick certain players from tiers. Do you dabble into that or do you stay away from those? I don't play a lot of that, Scott, but they are pretty fun. I have messed around with the DraftKings tier stuff a little bit. and. Um, I do like it in a way. I just really haven't focused on it enough to like, you know, have a lot to like, uh, have a lot of advice to give on it, but it is like a unique format. It's something a little bit different. Um, I do, I do dip in there a little bit, just, just as fun, but um, yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a lot of useful uh, info on, on those other, on those other formats. I've, I've played with the, the home run one, I like throwing in three guys and see if I'm going to hit. And, you know, it, you have to meet what, three home runs. And anyone that gets over three home runs selected, they split the pot. And it's a free one. Oh, okay. So it's first come, first serve. And however many uh, lineups are over, you just split a pot that's there. So that, that's kind of a fun one. Um, and I, I lied. I do have one more. So when you do all of your lineups, Say you do your your full nine man lineup. Do you specifically? You, you, obviously, you're going to go into the the higher money tournaments and throw it in there. But what I've been doing in the NBA, and I, I, I it sometimes gets me uh, some extra cents or dollars or whatever, depending on the lineup I hit. Do you throw it into the twenty five cents and the fifty cents for every lineup that you've done to? try to if you end up getting that random one that works out really well that you're going to hit on a larger tournament where the payout might be a little bit higher totally it's totally dependent on your risk aversion um some players will say that they don't enter the same lineup into more than one contest um so if you enter three different three max tournaments you would you would enter nine specific 
um, specific lineup, different lineups for those, you know, three different three maxes. Um, I typically don't, I, I'm a little bit, I, I don't mind taking a little bit more risk and having like a narrower field. And typically I'll enter that into multiple contests. I don't go crazy in terms of like entering every possible contest with that. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you, if you take a zero for the day, um, you know, that adds up, that right. adds up pretty quickly, but I just how I, I, I don't really use a lot of people who enter 150 lineups in a contest, things like that are using optimizers in order to do that. I don't have a ton of experience with that. I hand build my lineups and enter them in. Um, so when things change and you have 20 lineups, if you will, that you need to hand enter or that were specifically crafted, um, a specific way, it's, it's difficult to like make changes in mass. So I will typically just, I'm more of a player who will play three lineups and enter that into a number of different contests. That's just, that's just my comfort level with things, but that's a good um, point, especially if a guy gets injured last minute and you got to make a change quick. It's extremely difficult. And especially in baseball, when you're sometimes you have to enter, you know, lock could be at seven o'clock and the Dodgers lineup doesn't, well, the Dodgers are pretty good, bad example, but you know, uh, a a 10 o'clock start team doesn't announce their lineup. So you're sort of flying blind. Whereas, you know, at lock, you can really like your lineup and then, um, you know, Max Muncy gets ruled out and he was in your, at your second base spot and there's no equivalent player to play there. You know, you know what I mean? So it it can be difficult um, where I, I just personally don't have a lot of experience with the tools that would help with that sort of situation. So I just hand build my things and I like control. Um, and, And like I said, when I'm entering three specific lineups, I'm very strategic about, um, like if I want an ACE in my lineup, my second lineup might w- won't have an ace in it or something. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm going to, ch- my three lineups are uniquely crafted to achieve a certain goal, if you will. So, um, yeah, that's great. I mean, I, yeah. th- this has been great. I, I, hopefully it's going to help me moving forward in, in this season. Maybe I'll get better than I have been in the past. I'll, I'll try some of these tricks and tips. Um, so kudos to all that. Uh, since we have you on, the Cleveland Guardians have made some splashes. So quick transition here before we uh, cut off. Uh, what is your take with the uh, extensions that the Cleveland Guardians have done? They've, they've uh, had three, I think you could probably call them significant extensions here for a team that doesn't typically like to spend. Uh, so I'll give you the floor and you can have at it. Yeah, so it was sort of a pleasant surprise starting with the Jose Ramirez extension last week. That kind of got everything um, off and rolling. Um, obviously, the Guardians have taken a lot of heat um, really over the last few years since they've, they've in theory cut um, their roster down since like the 2016 and 2017-18, if you want to call it that, um, competitive years where they were really in the prime of their window um they were on the record as overextending their budget a little bit during those years um in order to kind of go for it now i'm not here to argue whether that's accurate or true or you know i'm not i'm not going to vouch for the team you know the team finances in any way um it's just it's just what they do though as a as a small market team um 
you have these short periods of contention and then you have to make, you know, tough decisions. And, and they made a lot of tough decisions that were unpopular, um, which sort of stacked up year after year. Um, and it, and it, 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 I think it took a hit on the organization in terms of um, how they were viewed amongst the fan base and specifically across the league. Um, we've seen other teams do this, but I, I think that the guardians history um, they, they got a lot of flack for it to just, just to be straight up about it. So in some of it, some of it was deserved. Now, a lot of those people are, are probably taking a half step backwards now uh, or walking their, what they said, a half step back um, after the Ramirez extension, which was, which was a sizable commitment um, that they made. And then they followed that up with the Emmanuel Classe and um, Miles Straw extensions as well, which on their own, none of the moves make a ton of sense. Um, but in conjunction with each other, they make a ton of sense, in my opinion. Um, this is just what the what the Guardians and other small market teams do. You have to you have to gamble a little bit to get ahead of um, what you think are up and coming players um, and and lock them in at a reasonable price um, through what you think is going to be your contending years. That there's really like we're seeing that all across the league. Um, I mean. The Rays did it last year with Wander Franco. We saw the Padres do it with Fernando Tatis. Um, those were big commitments for relatively small market teams um, that saw an opportunity and said, we need to, we need to lock these guys up um, before they have any opportunity to even sniff the open market. Because once that happens, we just can't, we can't compete with the big fish. And, and it's, it's, I, I think it's smart for, for two reasons. It 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 long term it's probably the smart reason because you avoid having to go head to head with other teams in free agency. I mean, you're just never going to outspend Yankees, the Red Sox, those kind of teams, the Dodgers. Um, so you're eliminating that. You're just taking that out of the equation. Also, in the short term, it gives your fan base a ton of ton to root for, and it and it takes any of like the lingering well, I like this player, but he's going to leave in three or four years, or we're going to ship him away in three or four years because we can't sign him. So even if it like in the case of the Padres, even if Tatis is injured, most of his career doesn't work out in the moment. I think that's the right move to make for your fan base. Players can get behind that same thing with Wander Franco. Maybe, maybe he, I, I don't think this is the case, but maybe that contract looks bad at the end of it. But in the moment, right now, I think it creates a ton of excitement with your fan base around a top prospect in baseball that you just made a major commitment to and locked up for a number of years. Now, I, I've been on the record on this podcast as saying that I don't think Franco will live, live uh, will stay in Tampa to see the end of that contract. But I think you you get the point I'm getting at here. I mean, the, I do. The, the, the Guardians, you know, Miles Straw might not be a $25 million player over the next five years, but there's also a chance that he's a $50 million player over the next five years. And they made a commitment. They saw he fits in line with what they want to do. He's a center fielder. He's a leadoff hitter. It, it's something that they, this organization values. And I think we're, you know, we've seen them do it. And I, I honestly, I think the part, the pirates also are another team that gets a ton of flack in this area. The Orioles, the same thing. I think those are two teams that we could see, do similar things as, as 
they their their lower level talent sort of develops. Both of those teams, the Orioles, the Pirates, have top ten um, prospect, uh, sorry, system rankings, and um, you know there's some high end talent there. I would not be surprised to see those teams trying lock up some of their their premier players ahead of time, um, like the Rays did, like the Padres did. Um, I, 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 if I had to bet money, I'd say the Royals are the next team to do this with Bobby Witt Jr. Um, and, uh, you know, we've seen the guardians start doing that. The Orioles pirates, two more teams, I think we'll start to, um, see doing that in the future. Yeah. It's interesting because in the NBA, we're, we've been seeing more of these kind of extensions and in the NBA, we have, uh, there's a max, but they, they've been signing some extensions that have been sort sort of the middle tier extensions. And in, in, in hopes that those players could potentially be trade pieces because their salaries for matching purposes are not astronomical and it's easier to move. I sort of feel like the same thing is happening here with the Guardians, where you've got a, in a class A at four million, straw at five million. Those are for the average salary. Those aren't bad for having to move those if you needed to throw them in, if for some reason in three years, the guardians decide we just need to cut ties or we're stripping it down again. There are at least salaries that are appealing to those other teams, but they've also already bypassed their arbitration. So you're not having to go to arbitration. You're already under control for a long period of time. Correct? Yeah, for sure. I mean, class a and Miles straw both had two year options on the back end as well. Um, which we have seen, you know, utilized to perfection with like Corey, right in Cleveland with Corey Kluber was a very similar situation. Even Jose Ramirez has been playing on player, super reasonable player options the last few years where you have the option. If that player doesn't work out, you walk away. If he does work out, you can either have him on your roster or you are selling him. Um, sorry, selling is the wrong terminology. You are dealing him to a contender. Um, for you know for hopefully prospects that jumpstart your next rebuild and we've seen teams you know it, people just want these smaller market teams to spend all the time which is just unrealistic now should they be spending in the 30s and 40 millions no that's it's too low there there needs to be more of a commitment but at the same time i don't think you would smart baseball people would argue that they're they're doing in theory the right thing now whether it works out to be determined, but you know, they, they can't go full throttle every year. That's for sure. Right. All right. So two questions to finish this off one, which extension do you like the most? And two, are the guardians done extending right now? Or do you foresee based off of the roster and, and the depth that you know that they have, is there another uh, player or two that, that you think that they may lock up here in the next uh, couple weeks or towards the end of the season? Great question. Um, I, it, it's really a great question. They have a number of players who are just sort of like coming into their own as prospects that you, you could see them make some sort of commitment to. Maybe the pitchers like Zach Plesak or Aaron Savali especially coming off of what was high, what was mostly thought of as two down years for both of them. Um, maybe they try and may, maybe if they like them long-term, they try and lock those guys up. Um, 
they don't do it too often with pitchers though. Uh, so I, I would probably put that at the bottom of my list, even though they do assign, you know, a closer, but um, in terms of like a name, you can maybe see that with, he's had a hell of a week, but Steven Kwan um, just broke into the league. He's the perfect guy, in my opinion, sort of a nowhere, a player out of nowhere. Um, if you dangle several million dollars in front of him right now, he's, he's probably likely to take that. Um, and, and maybe that's the kind of player that, um, you know, returns a ton of value in the future for you. Um, I also made like Brian Lavastida made his uh, debut yesterday. He's a, he's a catcher um, that is like super well-rounded, good defensively, has a little bit of power, can run the base as well. He's another guy I think you could um, identify as like a, a, a player people don't really know about, um, but might get like a, excuse me, an early contract to uh, avoid um, arbitration. But, but really Scott, I think a lot of, like, I don't think they're going to lock up, you know, 10 players or anything like this. I just think th they're going to identify specific players with that are, that they want there as their top 10, you know, top five, top three farm system develops and comes to the majors. They want those guys in place already as this other talent develops around them. And, you know, to, to hopefully hit another two or three year window um, in a couple of years from now. So that, I, I would probably just leave it at that. Yeah. Okay. And and so which of the three extensions do you like the most that have happened so far? I, oh man, I'm going to, oh, of the three that already happened. Um, right. I, I, it's so un, I mean, I, everybody complained about Jose Ramirez not getting an extension. I'm in that camp. I'm thrilled that they got that done. Even if at, you know, even at the end of that, if it doesn't, if he's, not the same player he probably won't be it doesn't matter just keep that player in cleveland he is he's a fan favorite he's came out of nowhere he is you know homegrown he's done nothing but like take your you know to produce he's done nothing but to produce for your franchise so i'm thrilled that they got that done but i really like the mile straw extension um he was a player that i didn't really know about when they that when they acquired him um, I was aware of his tools, but had never really seen him play in any length of time because he was buried with the, with the, the Astros, but he's come over and he's, he's sort of exactly what this team values. And that's a bone. They really like a bona fide leadoff hitter. They love speed. I mean, they're not afraid to run and they really like just putting a guy in center field like that. Um, and he's an incredible defender. So I, I, as like a small move that five years down the road, you look at and you go, wow, that was like a really valuable piece of the puzzle. I, I like the mile straw extension a lot for that reason. All right. This was great, Dan. Appreciate all the information between DFS and your insight into the Cleveland guardians. Uh, thanks again. Awesome. Yeah. Let's have a, let's uh, enjoy baseball finally. Right. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Have a good one. All right. Thanks Scott. Thank you.